I don't want to hear, I don't want you to hear me thinking or saying that um, I wouldn't be excited to preach the Lord's Supper or Last Supper passages. There's several accounts of these in the Gospels. Matthew and Mark, Luke have these solemn scenes. John 13 has one. Some of its content even adds to what we don't see in Luke. I'm always glad to get to these scenes, but I do feel always as a preacher coming to the table of Jesus and his disciples, a feeling of trepidation because of the sacredness of the words that are there, the absolute uh, solemn occasion of that night. There were so many meals Jesus shared with his disciples, and there was no other meal like this one. This was, this was a table scene that you, that you almost want to just sort of read and say, I don't know what more we can say to bring some clarity, shine some light on this. There's so much here in its beauty and power. In the first century Roman Empire, and Jewish families would gather together on the evening of Passover, and they would eat a meal, and they would talk about what God had done. They would talk about what God had done 1,500 years earlier, if they were in the first century. God had delivered the Israelites 1,500 years prior to the days of Jesus, delivered them out of Egyptian bondage. And it was an evening meal that was set apart every year, unlike every other evening meal they shared. There were elements to interpret. There were uh, elements of remembrance interwoven in the scene. Generation after generation, families would keep the tradition of Passover. This was not a man-made tradition. God told them to keep this tradition. This was a tradition that was in line with what 19th century composer Gustav Mahler once said. Tradition, like in this case, tradition is not the worship of ashes. It's the handing on of fire. And in this case, to proclaim the Passover year by year is the handing on of the fire of God's delivering work. It is the proclamation of his rescuing grace. And while they were in captivity and bondage and darkness, the fire of God's delivering hand was not only experienced, but it was defining for them. Tradition in this case is not the worship of ashes, the handing on of the fire. So many years then of these disciples sitting on that specific evening of the year enjoying their Jewish Passover together. In fact, many scenes in Jesus' ministry were table-related. If you count before the cross of Jesus Christ, there are actually seven meal scenes before the cross where he dies. Seven meal scenes. In fact, the Passover scene in Luke's Gospel is the seventh before the cross. This seventh scene before the death of Jesus takes place as what you might call the most climactic of all the seven meals. This is the Last Supper, and Jesus is there with his twelve, and the timing is given in verses 7 through 13 with some instructions. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. We have to remember how time is reckoned. In Jesus' day, the Passover lamb would have been sacrificed on the afternoon of Passover, but, uh, which would in this case have been a Friday afternoon, but the days were from evening to evening. So what we, should, what we should think about in our minds is it's now Thursday evening of Passion Week, the day of the Passover that has begun. And that in the many hours that will follow, there is a trip to Gethsemane and arrest and sham trials, a condemnation and appearance before Pilate and a crucifixion, all included in that evening to evening window. 
When Luke tells us here that the day of unleavened bread has come, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed, when he tells us this, this is still that Thursday evening, when from evening to evening the new days were reckoned. Jesus sent Peter and John with an errand. The other Gospels also report sending disciples, but don't name them. Luke names them. He tells us Peter and John were the ones who heard Jesus say, Go prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. We must carefully think here that Jesus is yet to be crucified. There's yet to be Passover lambs slain in the temple. What Jesus is doing at this meal is eating a Passover meal in evening early. And the reason for this is because the strategy in God's providence is for Jesus' death to be taking place during the slaying of the Passover lambs in the temple. The priests will later say in John's Gospel, for example, that at the crucifixion of Jesus, none of them had yet celebrated the Passover. It would be on that Friday evening. This is to be considered a Passover meal, though, because of the language of Jesus. Go prepare the Passover for us. Given the specific nature of what he's going to undergo, the evening before with this meal now makes more sense. He says, go prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Where, they say, behold, when you've entered the city. Now, Jesus is wanted in Jerusalem. And I don't mean by just crowds with a positive view. People did want to hear him. People did flock to him. He's wanted also by authorities. They'd like to execute him. They'd like him removed. Thank you very much. He's nothing but a thorn in their side. And so Jesus, by sending disciples into Jerusalem, is preparing for us to see, like all other Passover meals that people travel to enjoy, you ate them inside the city. Jesus doesn't have a real estate inside the city of Jerusalem, nor do the other disciples. And so there is a particular guest room that will be made available so that inside the city, the Passover meal can be eaten. But Jesus, knowing knowing the, the target on him, is not pulling back from the confines of Jerusalem or any of the people who might see him or hear of where he is with his disciples. They're a big group. It's Jesus and a group of 12 in addition to anybody else that's following him around. When you see a huge group following somebody around, if you're a religious leader, you might think that could be Jesus in the mix somewhere in there, either in the front or in the middle. That's probably a big group with him. When Jesus says, go prepare the Passover that we might eat it, he's not pulling away from any plans in Jerusalem. Everything's going as it's been ordained. Everything you're going to read in the Passion account is not, hey, we went into Jerusalem and then things went terribly wrong. No, everything you read about what happens in Jerusalem forward is the absolute plan of God from the foundation of the world. Jesus is in absolute control. And so he sends them into the city of Jerusalem. There's no need to pull back from there. His mission will be fulfilled there. Go prepare the Passover, he says, that we might eat it. And this would involve a few things, making sure that the the, uh, horseshoe design tables and cushions were uh, appropriate, the herbs and the, uh, the, the bitter herbs and any of the other additional food elements, all of that is there, so that when the meal time happens, everything is set. And so they want to know where, and prior to this, it doesn't seem that on the day's itinerary, all the details are present. It's not like they say, okay, remember, he said it's going to be in Jerusalem at this house. He's actually not made that known to them. They don't know where they ought to go. And so here are his instructions in verse 10. Behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. 
The instruction here is to find a man carrying a jar of water that would stand out. Normally, it it was a, a woman who might be carrying a jar of water in the city. That was more common to see. It would be noticeable then if you saw a man carrying a jar of water. And here, you're going to follow the man into the house that he enters. This may indicate that the man with the jar of water is some kind of servant uh, or worker in the home. And when you follow this man, this is the cue, you're to tell them, he's to tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? The, the servant and then the disciples are all coming with this message then for the household master. Apparently, using the language teacher is going to be sufficient enough code or some kind of giveaway that everybody knows what we're talking about. Some people have wondered as interpreters, did Jesus just prophesy all of this? And, you know, the the guy in the house doesn't even know what's coming. Well, it certainly is the case that Jesus demonstrates divine insight and prophecy in the Gospels. That doesn't have to be a way to read it here. Jesus has, on, um, on uh, other gospel accounts even, arranged and dealt with things ahead of time and now may be telling his disciples what's been arranged. In fact, if, if they are told in verse 11 to go into this house, and in verse 11 refer to the teacher, and then in verse 12, he will show you a large upper room furnished, that may indicate some things have been in motion already. And so my, my own uh, way of looking at this is that Jesus has prior arranged this. And, um, and now the disciples are let in on the details of this prior arrangement. He'll show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. It's likely that this house, like many other upper rooms, would have been entered from an outside staircase Um, On the outside of the home, uh, a a house with an upper story would be the kind of thing you would go uh, on the outside and then to this upper room, not disturbing anybody in the floor below. The large upper room there would be all set and Peter and John are to work there in that room readying the moment. Luke is giving us the advance of time by the way he's telling the story. Last week we saw in chapter 22-1, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near. And then we're told in verse 7, now came the day. And then in verse 14, now comes the hour. Can you you feel that sense of approach and nearness in the storytelling? The day was near, now the day has arrived, and now an hour has come. And what verses 14 to 16 give us is at this hour of reclining at the table, there's an earnestness Jesus expresses. Verses 14 through 16. And when the hour came... You know, John's gospel makes a big deal out of hour, an hour that was going to be the hour of uh, crucifixion, the hour where he will be glorified in the wisdom of God through a redemptive work on a cross. Luke also emphasizes hour. This doesn't necessarily mean the cross here, right? This is the hour of the meal. When the hour came, the appointed time, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. Think about this scene for a moment. You may be familiar with Leonardo da Vinci's painting, and you've got all the disciples on one side of the table, and that would not be an accurate portrayal of this scene, okay? Um, you know, beautiful painting is not the custom, all right? They're not everybody's on the same side of the table. Um, then instead, what you should envision is a sitting arrangement in a, in a horseshoe fashion on cushions. Um, he reclined at table. 
You might not think of your dinners as a place at the table in a chair where you're reclining. You might think, I'm reclining after dinner. <laughs> like, that's, that's after dinner. It's not during dinner. That would seem kind of strange, maybe, uh, depending on the kind of chair you have. Some of you are getting inspired thinking about how you can recline at dinner. I don't blame you. Um, he's reclining at table, likely leaning back on, on his elbow, and the other posture of the disciples mimicking this with their feet outstretched. You shouldn't imagine tall chairs and a tall table, but a low table and cushions arranged in a seating position where they're actually quite near the floor. And um, their legs would be outstretched. And part of this would make it easier for anybody that was working in the home to do any washing of feet that needed to take place. More on that in a moment. He reclined at table and the apostles with him. This is to speak of the kind of relaxation into the grace, gracious rescuing work of God. Because in the Exodus, in the book of Exodus, nobody was reclining that night. When the tenth plague was coming, they were eating with their garments, their belt, their staff in hand, unleavened bread. Because leavened bread would take too long. They were eating with haste, readiness. To leave at a moment's notice. The posture of reclining at the table is a way of remembering the effect and outcome of God delivering his readied people. The hour came. He's reclining and the apostles with him. So how many people are in the room? Well, we should picture that Jesus and his 12 disciples are there. But even though there's an owner of the home and a previous servant with a jar of water on his head in the street, we have no reason to think they are present. Instead, Jesus has wanted to eat the Passover meal with his disciples specifically. Yes, there are plenty more than 12 who've been following Jesus. Many have been listening to him in the temple. Many who have been going geographically with him as he travels. We are to set them aside in our minds. Is Jesus and the 12 arranged in this setting at the table? And what he says in verse 15 is, I really have wanted to do this with you. I have earnestly desired. That's not like, I felt like this was a good idea. We would eventually get to it. Earnestly desire is a very strong phrase in the original language. It's to say, this, this was a high priority. I wanted this very much. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Right there, tucked at the end of verse 15. A not so subtle reminder. Before I suffer. So it's coming that he continues to put before them that they have not fully processed the implications of is that he, their Messiah, their son of David, the one they've confessed to be their Christ, he's going to suffer. He's already told them this. He's told them he's going to suffer, be rejected. He's going to die and on the third day rise. We wonder if they ever even got to that last part. Whenever he told them this. Because it was so outrageous to them. That the son of David would be rejected and suffer. He said I really wanted to do this before I suffer. And in verse 16. For I tell you. I will not eat it. Until it's fulfilled. In the kingdom of God. Some interpreters have said this means in verse 16. He didn't actually eat with them. I don't think that's a necessary reading of this. Some translations in other Gospels, when you read alongside Luke 22 here, they, they leave the impression he means, I will not eat this again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God, but I've earnestly desired to eat it with you now. In fact, he says in verse 15, I've earnestly desired to eat it. And we should imagine Jesus sharing the food and the drink there with them at the table, rather than sort of standing there watching them all eat. 
In verse 16, I take this to mean, I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And I think he means, I've earnestly desired to eat this supper with you because this moment is precious and important given what's about to come. Already, though, Jesus seems to indicate there's a forward nature to their meal. I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What about the kingdom of God has anything to do with Luke 22's supper in an upper room of a guest house in Jerusalem? What's the kingdom of God have to do with any of that? Well, you see, meals in the, in the gospel of Luke before this seventh one were in homes of Pharisees or in homes of tax collectors or in the hillside where thousands were fed with fish and loaves. And all of these meal scenes were saying Jesus is the host, the divine giver of life and sustenance. And he's come to bring the nations and sustain them with his spiritual life. We heard from John 6 just a moment ago that I am the bread of life that comes from heaven. The manna your fathers ate in the wilderness, they ate that and died. But what I'm coming to give you is different. Jesus recognizes that all of his fellowship and hospitality with people is indicating something deeper and grander. They might not even grasp it at the time. But Jesus knows you and I were made to fellowship with God. That's why we exist. We weren't made for banal and trivial things of the world. We were made to know and fellowship with the creator of all things and to be everlastingly satisfied in him. And all the meals Jesus shared with sinners is a hopeful installment that one day God will dwell with us and we will be his people and dwell with him and we forever will enjoy fellowship with him. All those meals anticipate it. Jesus is going to rise from the dead and ascend to the Father. And there will be an advent of the church age where Jesus is not bodily present with them as they have enjoyed in the earthly ministry of Jesus. Instead, His church will be built through His ascended work and outpoured spirit. And they long for His second coming when He would make all things new. I think verse 16 is anticipating that final consummation. I tell you, I won't eat it, or we might say eat it again, until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. It's a reference to say all of these meals, and especially this last one with you before the cross, all of this is anticipating what is coming. A a consummation, a surpassing, glorious dwelling with God and His people and in the people with their God. You can say that the Passover was pointing forward. And not just to the cross. The Passover was pointing beyond the cross. In verse 16, he's going to eat it with them in the kingdom of God. Which is a way of saying, I'm going to suffer. That's not going to be the last word. I've got suffering and death that are to come. But how can you make sense of that being the end of Jesus if he says something like verse 16? Something is beyond his coming suffering. Something on the far glorious horizon. The Last Supper anticipates Jesus' return. Don't we think about that in 1 Corinthians 11 anyway? Paul says every time we eat it, we're not only remembering, he says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, we are doing this supper until he comes. There's an anticipatory element built into the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, and it's all prepared by Jesus' own words. We look forward because Jesus looked forward. 
We anticipate because Jesus is not a promise breaker. We can have hope that this will be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. In other words, that we will dwell with God with this festal imagery, which is a way of talking about coming to the table with hospitality and peace and reconciliation. All of that is to say to sinners, God is coming for you and rescuing grace. And whatever you have experienced of him to this point pales in comparison to what is coming. The kingdom of God. Jesus is the king. And though he will suffer, and though he will die, none of this nullifies his kingship. It ensures it. They can't see it this way yet. They're not prepared for the glory of the cross. It looks like foolishness and a stumbling block, but they will see. They will see soon enough what God's wisdom and plan is. He says in verses 17 and 18, Some instructions about a cup before the normal bread and cup language we would expect. According to Jewish tradition, there were multiple cups used in Passover meals. This is probably an earlier one, perhaps the first or the second, that is used. And in verse 17, he takes this cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. I would imagine when you sit down at a meal with somebody, you probably don't share all one cup together. I'm just speculating, you know, I'm not trying to say it has to be that way, but I bet you got your own cup and I bet the person next to you their own, probably. And in verse 17, what's important about this Passover meal is the unity being portrayed. They are together. They are friends. They have followed Jesus. They have heard his teachings. And he's assembled them together in the upper room of this guest house. Take this. Divide it among yourselves. So he gives them this cup, which is a way I think of portraying symbolically here the unity that they are to have with each other and in him. They're to follow Christ. And in following Christ, they will be connected to each other. It's to speak of their common communion and fellowship. I think this is powerfully brought out when the Apostle John writes the letter of 1 John. He talks not only about those who are in the light having fellowship with God, but he speaks about having fellowship with one another in God. And that's what this is to portray. They not only know Christ, they not only seek to be his disciple. By being a disciple of Jesus, they are automatically joined together in him. And he wants them to enjoy this fellowship and acknowledge the communion that they share. All of the language of sharing the cup or giving thanks, this is part of what informs the language, having communion as a church. Communion speaks of that togetherness, that fellowship. It's based in the words of Jesus and Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. When we think about Jesus giving thanks or Paul talking about thanksgiving in his letter to the Corinthians, that's where the word Eucharist comes from. It's the idea of thanksgiving. When we speak of the communion of of the saints and the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist that we have together, all of this is referring to what happened that Jesus set as an example for us to imitate as his people. And he tells them again in verse 18 why he wants them to share this together on that night. He says in verse 18, For I tell you that from now on I won't drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Just like verse 16 emphasized the coming kingdom, verse 18 emphasized the coming kingdom, verse 16 talked about eating, verse 18 talks about drinking. Jesus is talking about sharing a life with them. They know him and they have a future with him. And Jesus wants them to anticipate that. I like what one writer reflected on this passage to say. He says, Jesus 
will abstain, if you will, from future eating and drinking where he is going until he can have all of his people with him at the table in his kingdom. Now think about that for a moment. Right now the church is separated and scattered throughout the world. The multinational church of Christ. Christ is building his church from the nations and languages and peoples throughout the world. More will be drawn to him and more saved as Christ builds his church. So there is not yet the moment where all the people of God could gather at the table on that last day. And so what this writer says is Jesus refuses to eat and drink in the absence of all of his people. He so esteems his people that he will not celebrate with food and drink until they have all finished their course and are with him in that place. In the kingdom of God, that's the hope. Eating there, drinking there, it's the image of hospitality and table fellowship and liveliness. It's not to say you're sitting around a table um, for all eternity. This is an image, okay? It's an image to say, metaphorically in the ancient world, you would want to enjoy everlasting fellowship and happiness with those you love. And Jesus says, I want to enjoy everlasting happiness and love with all of my people. In the kingdom of God it will be. And then we get to familiar words in verses 19 and 20. This is the heaviest part of the passage because prior to this, everything has seemed somewhat familiar. Passover meals were eaten inside Jerusalem. They were eaten in rooms. Things were furnished and prepared ahead of time. There were various cups and herbs. There was a host, which of course would be Jesus. There's reclining at tables, which of course they're doing. Everything to this point doesn't necessarily stand out to, okay, this is, this is a completely different kind of evening. We have no idea what's coming next. But in light of what might have been familiar to some degree, here things take a very particular turn tells us in verses 19 and 20 that he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the Old Testament, Exodus 12 and 13 told the Israelites, you're going to remember this generation after generation. You're going to, you're going to have your table. Your children are going to say, why are we doing this? And you're going to say, here's what all of this means. And you're going to recall together and remember. But it was always, listen, it was always about remembering what God had done in the past. It was always referring in those moments to the Exodus. It was telling your children and reminding your contemporaries around the table, your family and your guests. Remember when God brought them out after the 10th plague? And how the lamb's blood had been shed and the houses with that blood were passed over and how we came out in haste and God brought us in. Even though the Egyptian army came after, he vanquished them in the Red Sea. We parted through on dry land. Don't you remember? So you're, you're just celebrating the delivering work of God. It was the common template of speech to use that moment as the host and interpret the elements referring to what God did in the book of Exodus. Nobody, nobody would think of taking that moment in their right mind and starting to talk about themselves. What host would ever look at the elements of the table 
And instead of starting to talk about Moses and the Israelites and the Egyptians and the 10th plague, all of a sudden start talking about his body and his blood. There had never been a Passover where any of those words had ever been spoken. There had never been a host of a Passover meal who would ever said those things. All of a sudden we realize we are in some new territory on this meal. This is not like, this is definitively not like every other Passover meal. All of a sudden Jesus is talking about his work. But listen, it's not unrelated to the Exodus. He's coming to give a new one. He's greater than Moses. Our deliverance is more dire, more needed in our uh, desperation, more dire than the Israelite captivity. What Jesus has come to do has an Exodus background. He's come to deliver us with greater redemptive power. He's come to establish that kind of covenantal work where from here onward, the church of Jesus Christ won't be thinking about the Exodus in the Old Testament. They'll be thinking about the cross. It's coming to redefine everything. That Passover meal in the Old Testament is reaching what you might call a fulfillment, a crescendo, where all of that Exodus terminology, terminology and deliverance now must be understood in light of what Jesus does on the cross. So he says, after taking bread and giving things and breaking it and giving it out to them, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The language of the verbs given so many and so quickly here, taking giving thanks, breaking, passing it out to them. All of, this, all of this language in line, these verbs, were used much earlier in Luke 9.16 when Jesus fed the 5,000. The little loaves and fishes had been brought to him and he took them and he gave thanks and he broke them and he gave them and all of a sudden it was enough for everybody that came to eat. Listen, friends, if you come to receive Christ, you will always find enough. There will always be Christ for sinners who come. So come. You don't have to worry about whether there will be room. There will be. You don't have to worry about whether Christ has enough of himself or mercy for you. He does. The miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 foreshadowed even this Lord's Supper moment. The Last Supper moment. Here again, and not with thousands in the field and the grass, he is taking bread in an upper room and he's giving things and he's breaking it. Because indeed, like he said in John 6 when he fed the 5,000, I'm the bread of life. If you can see what Jesus is doing, what he's saying is to his disciples is, I'm going to be the sacrifice for you this weekend. In this Passover, it won't be the big deal of these lambs going to the temples. It's me going to the cross. That's the thing now. So the timing of it, of Passover, is to elevate not only uh, the messianic hopes that they have had, but the importance of Jesus' sacrificial death. He's come to deal with sin. He's come to take on our transgressions and sin. And so he said, this is my body. And listen to the substitutionary language. This is my body given for you. Jesus is not trying to prove something. I'm going to go to the cross. Let me tell you how serious I am about the things I've been teaching. What he's trying to get them to see is more than any moral instructions he's been giving to sinners. He's been trying to give life to sinners that they need through his own work. My body given for you. Now, of course, he's right there at the table with them. You know, they're not eating his flesh there in the table. He's present. He's passing out bread. But it's to signify the importance of what he is doing. 
In fact, it looks forward with this language given for you to mean what happens on the cross is what's for them. No Passover like this before. No host saying these words before. Nobody around a table hearing this kind of stuff before. This is new. And why is it so new? Friends, it's so new because what Jesus is doing is to establish the new covenant with his disciples. And new words are fitting for it. The newness of the covenant is especially clear in verse 20. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten. He takes a cup and he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He's talked about the bodily essentials. He's talked about his body and his blood. Harm coming to the body and the outpouring of the blood, this is the, this is the leading unto death. So by giving language to them about body and blood, he's talking about his death with his physical body. That the Son of God, according to his humanity, according to his true and genuine humanity, will suffer and die on a cross. And he says, this cup represents this. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. A cup in the Old Testament didn't always signify something positive. A cup in the Old Testament could be something prophets warned would come around to the unbelieving nations. God would send his cup of judgment to them and they'd have to drink it dry. And you see this in Ezekiel 23, Habakkuk 2.16, several psalms like Psalm 11.6. The idea of a cup or drinking in something could signify the judgment of God that had been promised on the disobedient. And Jesus would take the place of the sinner and become sin for us. On his head would be our transgressions counted. And so his, his experience on the cross, we can consider that a taking on to himself the cup of God's judgment. This cup. Poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Every word here matters. Pouring out language is something that they did with blood in the priesthood. At the tabernacle and at the temple, they would slice necks. They would drain blood. They would sprinkle and they would pour. And these various things were, were to demonstrate that the sacrifice was dead. The pouring out of blood was an image unto death and it was layered with sacrificial significance. My blood. My blood. In the Passover, you're remembering the lamb's blood that was shed. And your family goes to the temple on the, on the afternoon of, uh, of Passover day and you're going to be seeing your lamb sacrificed. The idea of talking about someone's own blood is not part of how they would think of a Passover. Jesus that is speaking with words that only make sense if we speak of promise and fulfillment. Of shadow and type and consummation and uh, ultimacy. Jesus has come to be the ultimate Lamb of God. He's not come to bring a sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. He's not come to go to the temple. He is the temple. He's not come to have his blood poured out by a priest. He is the priest. He is the priest who offers himself in his body and blood to establish a new covenant. A new covenant. Boy, that language is important. Only in Luke's gospel, in the, in the Last Supper scene, is the new word given. Jesus speaks in Matthew and Mark of the covenant in his blood. But Luke includes this important word which is certainly connected to the Old Testament. 
The new covenant is a phrase in only it's a phrase in only one Old Testament book. It's in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 31, God had said, I'm gonna, they've broken their covenant that I made with them when I brought them out of Egypt. So I'm going to make a new covenant with the people of God. A new covenant. And they will know me, their sins will be pardoned, and all the rest. And this new covenant is what Jesus is invoking. It had not been established to this point. The old covenant had been prophesied. Listen to the consciousness that Jesus has about what he's doing. Jesus believes that when he goes to the cross, he's going to form, and everlastingly so, a long-awaited and prophesied covenant in the Old Testament. And he's going to do so through his own suffering and death, his own body and blood. He's going to fulfill those promises. The old, the old covenant could be broken. This new covenant is one Jesus will establish, and it will be unbreakable. Those in the new covenant with Christ are eternally secure. They're in union with Him, and it's a union that's inseverable. Because it's His own body and blood that establishes it, and we receive through faith and trust what He has done on our behalf. This cup that's poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We also know in the Old Testament, in the book of Zechariah, in chapter 9, there's language about a king coming on a donkey, Jesus' gospel, uh, gospel accounts in the Passion Week include this ride on the donkey on the first day of the week, on Palm Sunday as we call it. But a couple verses after Zechariah 9 prophesies this, it talks about God delivering people because of the blood of my covenant, he says. In the very chapter where someone will come into Jerusalem to be received as their king, God is coming to deliver people through the blood of the covenant. And what Jesus clarifies in Luke 22 is, not only am I the expected king, I am the suffering servant who's come to lay down his life to form the new covenant. His blood inaugurates it. This language is very close to Exodus 24.8, where at Mount Sinai, the Israelites entered into a covenant through the shedding of blood. Moses had read the book of the law to the people. They heard it and said, we will do that. Now they overestimated their own capabilities. But they pledged that they would keep the law. And blood was shed. And blood was sprinkled. And a covenant was formed. And the book of Hebrews reads these kinds of themes. And the author of Hebrews says that covenants are formed with shedding of blood. And forgiveness of sins established with the shedding of blood. This shedding of blood means glorious things are afoot. And Jesus says, my body, that's what this bread tells you. My blood, that's what you're to think about with this cup. And it's for you. And why is it for you and that that's good news? Because I'm forming the new covenant. So you come to me, you come to me for life. My body and blood has purchased and finished atoning work for you. It's an unbreakable covenant. It is the new covenant. It is a new exodus. Jesus is a new Moses. He's come to make all things new. He's a new priest. He's a new temple. All of these layers of Old Testament hope and shadow and significance are rushing to their greatest meaning of all in what Jesus is doing that week. I remember, friends, growing up so many times, my my parents would say, uh, like you would say to your small children, look both ways. Okay, so you're going to cross the street. Make sure you look this way. Make sure you look that way. You need to look both ways before you do this. And I was thinking about that this week. The, the Lord's Supper is 
an ordinance we enjoy and delight in on the Lord's Day. And what we want to do in considering Luke 22 in ending our service with the Lord's Supper, friends, what we are doing is we are saying, let's look both ways. We want to look at what Jesus has done on the cross. We want to look at what God has promised in the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. We look both ways in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. The glory of God is in it. Because as we remember together and as we reflect on the cross, we look this way and we are strengthened and reminded of the new covenant in which we dwell. And as we look to the future and as we think of our hope that Christ spoke about at the table, that it would be fulfilled in the kingdom of God, we recognize that Christ will complete all he has begun. And that his finished work on the cross will be followed by his second coming and his consummation of the kingdom of God in which we will be eternal dwellers. Friends, we come to the table on this Lord's Day to look both ways so that we can behold the work of Christ on our behalf with his body and blood on the cross. Let's pray.